My God is merciful to me and merciful through Christ alone. Jesus has come. We can live. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for Jesus. And I pray that you would uh, help me right now to use my words to make much of him. We believe with all our hearts, Lord, that preaching is worship. That the worship doesn't stop when the music ends. And so I pray that you would help me to worship Jesus through the text right now and help us all to worship Jesus in our own hearts and minds as you teach us today. Please be our teacher. We need your help. Please be with my mouth. Help me to make things clear. And if anything's confusing, I pray that you would just clarify it in our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so this morning, uh, I mentioned what we were going to do last week, but we're going we're to take a one Sunday break from moving forward in our journey through Exodus. So for those of you who might not have been here last week, God has just rescued Israel in our story from slavery in Egypt in this great event called the Exodus. And this Exodus becomes kind of like a paradigm or a picture of of future salvation throughout the Bible, rescue from slavery. And now God's brought them to this mountain, Mount Sinai, where he comes down with his presence on the mountain and enters into a covenant with them, makes a covenant. And he gives them um, copies of this covenant, one for him and one for them, except they keep them both in the temple where, or in the tabernacle where they meet. These copies of the covenant are this Ten Commandments on stone tablets, two stone tablets. And these, this, law are, this law that he gives them, that's, it's the rules and the, the regulations for being in and staying in the relationship with God. And they've also received from God there blessing, promises of blessing for faithfulness to the law and warnings of curses for unfaithfulness. Now, last week, as I was working through um, the, the sermon about God's law, I was reminded again how absolutely essential the whole idea of a covenant is for understanding the law and how it applies and doesn't apply to us as Christians, and also how the whole Bible works, fits together. Covenants, they form the backbone of the Bible's story. Now, your backbone supports your body. It, your, your ribs all plug into it, right? And it gives structure to your chest, to your body, and it helps you walk and stand upright. In the same way, the covenants of the Bible support it. They hold it up, and they provide the structure around which the Bible's ribcage, right? The, the, the Bible is built, So instead of turning to Exodus today, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1, and we'll be starting there in a few minutes. And what I'd like to do is is preach an overview sermon on what covenants are in general, what they are in the Bible, and what it means for you and I as Christians under the new covenant. So point one for today is covenants defined. What are they? Point two, the five key covenants in the Bible story. And then point three what covenants mean for you and I. So the Bible is a big book. It can feel intimidating 
to poke your head into the world of the Bible with all these names and places and stories that are, are so different. Thousands of years ago, like what, how do I just understand this massive book called the Bible? I know I'm supposed to read it. I know it's good for me, but like it feels so, so strange. It's hard. We can get lost. We need a map. We need a compass. And what my prayer has been throughout this week is that this sermon would help give you the map, the compass for navigating your Bible. So here's here's the main idea for this morning's sermon. God establishes his kingdom on earth through covenants for his glory in Christ. God, the God of the Bible, establishes his kingdom on earth through covenants. For his glory through Jesus or in Jesus ultimately. So we'll start off with point one. What is a covenant? There's a lot of big wordy definitions of covenants out there. Theologians are great with coming up with really wordy things that are hard to understand. So instead of just reading some definitions, I decided I'll just describe what a covenant is for you in three statements. First, it's a special relationship which two people or gr- groups of people enter into. Like two tribes can form a covenant. Uh, two individuals can form a covenant. In the Bible, there's lots of covenants. Jonathan and David, in the book of Samuel, they enter into a covenant. Marriage is actually called a covenant in the Bible. And God makes covenants with people. Second, so that's the first thing. It's a special relationship which two people or groups of people agree to enter into. And second, a covenant always calls both parties entering into that relationship to show steadfast love and faithfulness to each other and to the rules of the covenant. Think of a marriage. You enter into a marriage, steadfast love and faithfulness is to be at the heart of it. Third, in a covenant relationship, faithfulness, steadfast love and faithfulness in the relationship is, will, be, will bring blessing. Unfaithfulness will bring curse. And so that's why a lot of covenants in the Bible say, Curse, curses be upon me if I fail to he, keep my word here, if I fail to be faithful. So that's what a covenant is. Kind of, there, and there's lots more that we could say about it, but that's just trying to describe in general what a covenant, what's at the heart of a covenant. That leads to the second point this morning, the five key covenants in the Bible's story. And here's where we're going next. First, we're going to look at God's covenant with Adam and all creation, the covenant that Adam ends up breaking. And we'll see that this covenant is reestablished with Noah. Noah is presented as kind of like an Adam do-over in the text, a new, a new Adam. And Noah is unfaithful too. So then we'll look at God's covenant with a man named Abraham, who is another Adam do-over. And even though Abraham is a failure and sins and, and is not a perfect person, he's declared righteous. He's declared as having kept the covenant, being steadfast and faithful, he's declared righteous in God's sight. How? He's not perfect. Faith. Abraham believes God, and it's counted to him as righteous. So we'll look at that, and then we'll look at God's covenant with Israel, which 
Who can tell me? Did Israel keep the covenant? No. (laughs) Which they broke. And then we'll look at the covenant with King David. And finally, we'll look at the new covenant. And again, through all these covenants, we'll see that God is on a mission to reestablish his rule as king and his reign of life over creation. And he's on that mission to do it through covenants with another Adam who must be a faithful servant in covenant relationship with him. So, God's first covenant with Adam and Noah. Now, to start all this kingdom through covenant talk off, we've got to understand that God is pictured as a king all over the Bible. Here's one example. 1 Samuel 8, when the nation of Israel demands a king like the nations, God says that they're ultimately rejecting him as king over them. God is king. And God is a good king, according to the Bible. He's not the kind of king that you should want to start a rebellion against. And in the first pages of Genesis chapter 1, we see that God, the great king above all kings, he creates a realm. If you're going to be a king, you've got to have a realm, right? Well, what's God's realm? The world that he creates. And in his realm, called the heavens and the earth, God places his own image. Earthly kings and rulers like to do this. They conquer an area, and then they put pictures or statues of themselves and of their image everywhere. And the pictures say, hey, this is what I look like, and this is my realm. This is where I rule. But God's images are alive, and they've been given a job. We've been given a job by God to do in creation. So if you've got Genesis open, look at verses 27 and 28 of chapter 1. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, do you see Adam and Eve's charge from God here? They're made in God's image, and first they're blessed by God, and then they're charged to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In other words, have lots of babies, have images of God that fill creation with images of God. Images that preach by their very existence that God is king over all the earth. And finally, Adam and Eve are to rule over creation. This charge to rule shows that Adam is actually like a sub-king ruling under God. In other words, God, the big king, rules over his creation through Adam, a little king, who is in covenant relationship with him. So we see God's kingdom through a covenant with Adam, resulting in the glorious image of God being put on display through all the earth, as Adam and Eve would hopefully multiply and fill the earth with God's glory. And his image. So you see God's kingdom through covenant with Adam for God's glory through Adam. Now before we go on, you may already know this, but the word covenant doesn't actually appear in the story of Adam and Eve in the garden. And because of this, there's many that would say, well, that's not when the first covenant shows up. The first covenant shows up where the text says it does in um, 
Genesis 6, verse 18. That's the first occurrence of the word covenant. But what I have become, I've become convinced that just because the, but because the word covenant doesn't show up somewhere does not necessarily mean that there's not a covenantal relationship to be seen in the text. So, um, God, okay, in 2 Samuel verse 7, which we'll talk about in a little bit, makes a covenant with David. But it's actually not called a covenant in 2 Samuel 7 until later in Psalm 89 verse 3, the psalmist calls it a covenant. So we don't find out that it was a covenant till a later text looks back at it and says, oh, well, that was a covenant. So what's a general rule of thumb for identifying a covenant? Well, if it looks like a covenant in the text and it smells like a covenant and it feels like a covenant and later texts call it a covenant, then it's probably a covenant. God's saying this in Genesis 1. Adam, I'm the big king. You're the little king. You are to obey my word, and you'll find life in the garden and enjoy my blessing. Be fruitful, multiply, image me in all creation, you and your offspring, and rule the world the way I would, obeying my every word. And if you break my word, then you see the covenant curses. Death and exile will come. How did Adam do? Was he, did he show steadfast love and faithfulness? No. He and his wife did not do well. They listened instead to the words of Satan, the serpent. And this little Adam, king, he decided to to pass his little ruler baton off to the devil. Basically, he's like, hey, I like your words better than God's words, so I'll rule the world under your word, not God's. You see, a regime change happened. A new king is being obeyed. All of a sudden, Satan, the craftiest of the beasts of the field, is the new king. As Paul calls him, the god of this age. The prince of the power of darkness. And so, when Adam passed the baton, the scepter for ruling, over to Satan, we see that Adam plunged himself and all creation into the curses that were to fall upon him for breaking the covenant. He and Eve introduced death, both spiritual death and the physical death that would follow into God's good world. They're also exiled, kicked outside the garden rest. Adam is a covenant breaker. The prophet Hosea, later in the Bible, thinks this is obvious. Not every translation um, will we'll pick this out, but I think the best translation of Hosea chapter 6, verse 10, says that when Israel breaks their covenant with God, they're actually breaking the covenant like Adam broke the covenant. So that's Hosea 6, verse 7, if you want to look at it later. Um, The ESV uh, translates it uh, correctly, in my opinion. Some of the other translations miss it. But regardless, it seems like Hosea sees a covenant breaking happening back in Genesis 1. And so when God faces his covenant partners who have rebelled against him, God makes a promise to them in Genesis 3, verse 15. And in his promise, God says that one day a baby would be born of a woman, a baby who will crush Satan's head. In other words, a new covenant partner is going to come, one who will not listen to the snake and rebel against God's covenant. And so right from the start of the Bible's story, we're looking for another Adam to come from Adam and Eve to defeat the snake. Who is he? Ultimately, he's Jesus. But in the story, we find out he's not Cain, the son of Eve, the first son of Eve, and it's not Abel because Cain 
acts like the snake, and he's a murderer, and he kills Abel. And so on and on we go as the creation spirals totally out of control. Until Genesis 5, verse 29, when we come to Noah. In the Noah story, God cleans evil out of his creation with a flood. But he spares Noah and his family on a boat called the ark. And then in Genesis 8, Noah and his family, they leave this ark where they were saved. And in Genesis 9, we get a repeat of Genesis 1, verses 27 to 31. In 9, verse 1, God blesses his new covenant partner. Remember, God blessed Adam and Eve. He blesses Noah in 9, verse 1. And he blesses his sons as well. And then... Like he charged Adam, God charges this new Adam to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with images of God. Instead of explicitly saying that he's to rule over creation, though, like he does with Adam, in chapter 9, verse 2, it says God places the fear of Noah and his sons on all the animals. And this seems like it's God's way of helping Noah rule the animal world. Animals will fear their king and the royal family. So I think that's another way of God saying, Noah, you're to rule the world, all creation. I will help you. Animals will have an inbuilt fear of humans. In verse 3, God gives the new Adam, Noah, all creation for food, just like he'd given the first Adam, the plants of the garden. And in verse 5, we see a reaffirmation that man is still in the image of God. So it's Genesis 1, 26 to 28, all over again. And now listen, I'm going to read from uh, verse 9 to verse um, 11 here, I believe. I forgot to write the reference here. So chapter 9, verse 9 to 11. God says to Noah and his sons, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as come out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. Then we see that God hangs his war bow in the clouds, the rainbow. That's a sign that he's lowered his bow. When you're done shooting, you take your bow and you hold it like this, and it's an arc. It's down. You're not shooting arrows anymore. God's judgment has stopped. This is a sign. And he hangs his bow in the clouds. He will not flood the world again. That level of decreation will not come again until the end of time when God destroys this world in its present state and ushers in new creation. Now notice in verse 9 that God establishes his covenant with Noah and with all creation. This word establish in verse 9, it's actually a word that always means to uphold or reestablish a pre-existing covenant. So when a new covenant is made with somebody, the covenant is cut. Different word. And we're going to talk about that image of cutting a covenant in a minute. But here, God reestablishes his original covenant with Adam and with all creation. And he establishes it. He reestablishes it through Noah and with all creation. That's why I'm counting these two covenants. Covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah as one. It's, it's covenant with Adam 
broken and reestablishing that same covenant with Noah in Genesis 9 and his family. So Noah is clearly presented as a new Adam going forth into this new creation after the flood with his offspring and with the charge to rule it according to God's word in covenant faithfulness. God's kingdom through covenant for God's glory through Noah. But Noah fails. Noah plants a garden like Adam. He's a gardener. He sins in the garden like Adam with the fruit of the vine. He gets drunk out of his mind, passes out in the tent, ends up in a state of naked and ashamed, um, in a naked and ashamed state, and then something terrible is done to him in the tent by one of his grandsons, most likely Canaan, and Canaan is cursed. So you see nakedness, you see shame, you see cursing. It's Genesis chapter 3 all over again. Noah fails miserably. And once again, things spiral out of control. And so now we come to another Adam figure, another one of God's covenant partners, Abraham. This is the second main covenant in the Bible. God's covenant with Abraham. And that starts in Genesis 12. There God picks his new covenant partner named Abram or Abraham to be a new Adam. Now God didn't choose Abraham because Abraham was a good person. In Joshua 24, Joshua, an Israelite, reflects back and says, Abraham was worshiping other gods when, with his daddy, Terah, when God called him. Abraham was not a good guy when God called him. God was a good God. And he decided to choose a new covenant partner, Abraham. And he made some huge promises to Abraham. He said he'd bless Abraham. And he'd bless all the peoples of the world through Abraham's descendant. And that he would make Abraham's name great. And that he would multiply Abraham's offspring. Do you hear Genesis 1.28 language? Be fruitful, multiply. Abraham, I'm going to multiply you. And he's going to give Abraham a special place, a special land for he and his children to live in. Once again, a new Eden-like land where they're going to enjoy life under God's word and God's rule. Then, in Genesis 15, we come to one of the most important scenes in the Bible. God comes to Abraham and he reaffirms Genesis 12 those promises to Abraham. And in verse 6, we read, Abraham believed God's covenant promises to him, and God counted Abraham's faith for righteousness. In other words, by placing all his trust in God, the sinful Abraham was declared righteous in God's sight. Not because he actually was perfect, we see that in the story, but simply because he places his trust in the Lord. And then God cuts a covenant with Abraham to formalize their relationship. Now, and now we can talk about why um, the word cut is used in starting a new covenant. In a covenant-making ceremony, both parties would often take several animals and cut them in two from end to end. And they would lay the, this is kind of gross, they would lay the, the parts of the animals opposite each other, one half the cow, the other half the cow, one half the sheep, the other half the sheep. And so the blood would flow down between the, um, the animals. So there was like a, a, a bloody path between these severed animals. And then as they made these oaths, 
of promising covenant faithfulness and love to each other, they would walk, both covenant parties would walk between the severed pieces, the cut animals, and they would cut a covenant with each other. And what they were saying was, if I fail to show steadfast love and faithfulness, may I be cut like those animals. They're calling curses down upon themselves as they walk. This is the picture that we have of a covenant in the Bible. And here's the amazing thing about this passage in Genesis 15. Abraham does not, as far as we can tell, walk through the pieces. He's in a deep sleep. God goes through the pieces as he's making this covenant with Abraham. God, the, this, this burning fire, this pot on fire goes between the pieces. Fire symbolizing all throughout the Pentateuch, the presence of God. God cuts a covenant with Abraham. God alone walks between the pieces, symbolizing God is the one who will be faithful to make all these promises come to pass. If God fails to be faithful, he will bear the covenant curses. All Abraham has to do here is believe God with real faith and faithful faith. Faith that actually listens to God's voice. Genesis 17 actually makes that really clear. The promises hinge upon whether or not Abraham will be a righteous covenant partner. And the way that Abraham is going to be a righteous covenant partner is not through perfection, but through the obedience of faith, through trust that actually listens to God. Abraham believes God with real faith, and that qualifies him, gets him counted as righteous. And we get our final confirmation of whether or not Abraham was truly a righteous covenant partner in Genesis 22, verse 16 to 18. There God says to Abraham, after Abraham's crazy trust exercise with offering his son Isaac to the Lord as a sacrifice, God stops him in the act and says, now I know where your heart truly is. You truly trust me. You truly listen to my voice. And so then the Lord says, In verse 16 of Genesis 22, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have listened to my voice. So here we see... God's covenant promises to Abraham, his new Adam, they're confirmed because Abraham trusts God. He believes him enough to listen to his word. And so God promises that his blessing will indeed come to the earth through a seed, one who will come from Abraham. And his, he also promises he's going to multiply this seed The seed will have offspring, as many as the sand on the seashore. That's, of course, a way of restating the original charge to Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. So Abraham, then, is to be the fountainhead, the father of a new kind of humanity, a humanity who doesn't refuse to listen to God's voice, but who walks by faith and believes the Lord and trusts him 
and has their sins forgiven and a righteous status spoken over them because they trust the Lord. But now we come to Abraham's kids, the Israelites. How did they do? Well, not so well, right? They didn't follow Abraham's example. God had said back in Genesis 18 verse 19 that all these promises, yes, they were going to come, they were going to happen. Abraham was faithful, confirming that these promises are going to come. Abraham and God's relationship was established through steadfast love and faithfulness. And Abraham truly trusted the Lord, and so he became righteous. It's going to happen, but only, in Genesis 18, 19, only when your kids are righteous and just. So, you have to have faithful children. When that happens, when your children, when, when, when your sons obey me, then all these blessings will come true. So we should be asking, like, uh, we, sh- we need to be watching Abraham's sons now very closely. When's that going to happen? Because the day it does, then the floodgates of God's promises will be opened to the, not just Abraham's kids, but to the whole world as he blesses all nations. So, we come to Israel, the physical children of, God, of Abraham. They're called God's firstborn son in Exodus 4, verse 22 to 23. The whole nation is called a son. And they're pictured as another Adam figure. The whole group of them. And God makes a covenant with this new son, this nation, at Mount Sinai. And in this covenant, God gives them laws. Good laws about how to love God and love their neighbors as themselves. And if they keep these laws perfectly, then they will be the truly righteous sons of Abraham. And all God's promises to Abraham will come true for them. They'll continue to be fruitful. They'll multiply. They'll find blessing in this new Eden-like promised land. They'll also be a blessing to the nations of the world as people will watch them obey the law and say, surely we've never seen wisdom like this. God's wisdom on display. And the nations will stream into Jerusalem and worship the Lord because of what Israel is showing them about God. That would have happened had Israel kept the law. If they disobey, though, they'll experience exile, just like Adam did. They'll get kicked out of their land, just like Adam got kicked out of the garden. The wages of sin is always death and exile and covenant curses. And we know the story again and again. Israel disobeys. They didn't have the righteousness of Abraham because they didn't have the faith of Abraham. The law that promised them life brought death because it fell on hearts of stone. Hearts that, with only a few exceptions, a remnant of exceptions, were spiritually faithless and dead. That's why a prophet like Abraham, can, like a prophet like uh, Isaiah, can say to these hard-hearted Israelites, back in Isaiah 51, verse 1, Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord, So listen to me, he says to all these Israelites who are trying to be good people by keeping the law. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, the quarry from which you were dug. Who's that? Abraham. Look to Abraham, your father, and Sarah who bore you. The law shows how Abraham's children, Abraham's children, how bad their sins really were and how hard their hearts had become. 
It revealed the real problem with their hearts and with humans isn't that we need more rules. The real problem is we need transformed hearts. We need the faith of Abraham. And so the, that's why Isaiah is saying, look back at Abraham. You are trying to be righteous by keeping the law. Realize you can't do it. You need Abraham's faith. Isaiah saw it. Paul sees it. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament. We need the faith of Abraham. And so, the point of Israel's story is to see that we still need a faithful son to arise from Israel to bring God's blessing to all the nations of the world. Who is this faithful son going to be? We know the answer as Christians, but I want you to see it, how it develops in the Bible's story. The next covenant narrows even further who this coming child of Abraham is going to be. The fourth covenant is the covenant with King David. At this point, we're just really summarizing. Eventually, the nation of Israel, they get exiled. They're kicked out of the promised land. Things have gone terribly for them. And again and again, they experience God's curses for breaking the covenant. But God sticks with them as a nation because of his promises to Abraham. And again and again, we see God's faithfulness towering above the wreckage of human unfaithfulness and rebellion. It is truly, truly amazing. Eventually, though, the Lord gives his unfaithful covenant partner a king to rule over them in the land. And this king is supposed to rule over them in righteousness and in justice, according to the law of love that God has given in the Ten Commandments and the words that follow. And for a while, as we read the story of David in 1 Samuel, we might be tempted to think that King David's the faithful son of God in the last Adam, the one who would establish God's righteous kingdom on earth. But he's obviously not, because in 2 Samuel 7, God makes a covenant with King David. And in the covenant, God clearly tells us David is not the one. He promises, though, that his steadfast love and covenant faithfulness, they're not going to depart from David. So now God's narrowing his covenant love to Abraham down to the house of David. And he's saying, David, you are now entering into a covenant with me of steadfast love and faithfulness. I'm going to make your name great. Just like I promised to make Abraham's name great, your name will be great, David. And I'm going to raise up one of your sons after you to reign on an eternal throne. And of this son, God tells David, I will be a father to him And he will be my son. And all these covenant promises to David, they're going to come to pass when this son of David and son of God comes. So God, we see, he's still after his faithful human partner. He's still after a faithful son who's going to obey his covenant. Now the rest of the Old Testament in the Bible is the story of David's sons. The whole rest of the book of Samuel, the book of Kings, the book of Chronicles, all the prophets is is looking at David's sons and the people of Israel, their triumphs and ultimately their failures. And the Old Testament story, it ends with the throne of David empty. It ends with the people enslaved to foreign nation after foreign nation, still doing unrighteousness, even while claiming to be righteous. Think of the Pharisees. 
All the covenant promises of God were still unfulfilled. Covenant curse was everywhere you looked in the land of Israel at Jesus' time. One thing was clear. There was no truly faithful covenant partner to be found anywhere on earth. All these covenants are intended to highlight that super clearly. The only hope of righteousness is found through Abraham-like faith in God's promises Trusting the sacrificial system to pay for all the covenant breaking as God's people waited for a faithful covenant partner to come to David's throne and establish God's kingdom, God's rule and reign again through covenant relationship with him for God's glory. And so now we come to the most precious reality of the Bible. Jesus and the new covenant that he brings I've been hopping all over the Bible. That's what happens when you try to preach the whole Bible in one sermon. But if you have your Bible, I would encourage you to turn to Isaiah 59. Isaiah 59. We read these words in verse 14. God is surveying the wreckage of Israel's sinful condition. And he says... Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. Yahweh saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man. You hear that? God's looking, he's surveying the earth and he sees no man. He's looking for, who's he looking for? What man? He's looking for a faithful covenant partner. And Adam, who will obey him and open the floodgates of all God's promises to Abraham onto creation. But God finds none. Isaiah goes on. And God wondered that there was no one to intercede. So what does God do there? Then his own arm. This is a reference to Jesus. In Isaiah, his own arm brought him salvation. The image, how do you save somebody that's drowning in water? You roll up your sleeve and you reach your arm down and you pull him out. That's the picture of Jesus that I get, Isaiah gives, him, gives us. He's God's saving arm. He's the way God saves us. His own arm brought him salvation. And his righteousness upheld him. He God's arm put on righteousness as a breastplate and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands. He will render repayment. So here we see two things about this faithful arm of the Lord, this divine Adam who will do, who will come as a righteous Savior. First, he's going to kick Satan and all evil out of God's good world, out of creation. And he will save, second, all who repent of evil and come under his rule. In other words, we see the two comings that Jesus talked about right in this verse. The first coming is as Savior where he's wearing garments of salvation. And the second coming is where he wears garments of vengeance to rid God's world of all evil and all the curse that Satan has brought upon it. And Isaiah goes on. 
So they shall fear the name of the Lord. This is the result of his coming. They shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come. Who? The the saving arm, the saving Adam will come like a rushing stream which the wind or the spirit, same word, of the Lord drives. And a redeemer, a rescuer will come to Zion to those in Jacob who turn from transgression declares the Lord So this righteous Savior who's coming, he's going to redeem. He's going to rescue his people from their sins. And as for me, says the Lord, this is my covenant with them. You have another covenant coming. My spirit that is upon you, he's speaking to Jesus here. My spirit that's upon you, Jesus, and my words that I have put in your mouth, they shall not depart out of your mouth or out of the mouth of your offspring or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time forth and forevermore. So, here's what's going on here. The Savior, who is coming from God, he's going to come with the Spirit. And by the Spirit, he's going to put the law of God, God's word, on the mouth of all his descendants, all his offspring, his children, That's a symbolic way that God is saying he's going to write his words on our hearts, his law on our hearts. Why do I say it? Well, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. He's going to put his words on our mouth by his spirit. And by the spirit, this righteous savior, he's going to create for God a righteous people who will know and love him from the least to the greatest. His offspring, the offspring of Jesus, are not biological. Okay? At the end of Isaiah chapter 53, when this great arm of the Lord dies and gives his life as a ransom for many, and it says he made many righteous by his sacrifice, at the end it says he will see his offspring. Jesus is going to see his offspring, his children, after his sacrifice on the cross. Who are his children? His spiritual children who have been made alive by the Holy Spirit, born again. Just like Adam the first dragged the whole of God's creation into curse and death, so this last Adam, Jesus Christ, he is not only an obedient son, that God was looking for when he looked on the earth and he said, there's nobody. I'm going to do it myself. I will become the faithful covenant partner that I require. And he comes as Jesus, the word made flesh. And he doesn't just come as an obedient son. He comes as a savior. He saves his people from their sins by taking the covenant curses upon himself at the cross. And by his spirit, Jesus has become a new creation with everyone who is connected to him by faith. So I'll just sum up again what these covenants show us about Jesus. There's no one on earth descended from Adam who is ever perfectly righteous. There is no chance in a billion that the son, a son of Abraham, would have been born who was perfectly righteous, a covenant keeper. So that all the blessings of the world would finally come to pass. Every human heart was sick with sin. And the righteous law given to Israel, the law about how to love God and neighbor, it 
didn't make Abraham's kids righteous. It didn't have the power to do that. They had a terrible heart problem. They heard the rules and it just showed them how bad they really were. They didn't truly believe and love the Lord. God's son Israel failed at being the new Adam we need. And so God, the only truly covenant, faithful covenant partner, he became a man born into David's family. The last Adam was God made flesh. And in Jesus, all the covenants, all the promises of all the other covenants, they are fulfilled. Jesus did not fail where all the other Adams failed. He perfectly loved God and he perfectly obeyed God's law. And the Holy Spirit of Jesus, he can change hearts. By his spirit, Jesus is being fruitful and multiplying like Adam and Eve never did. And he is on a mission to fill the earth with images of God, renewed and restored images like the waters cover the sea. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you are being renewed and restored into the image of God. And what is at the heart of this image bearing this righteousness, this law that we as images are supposed to obey? It's love of God and love of neighbor. Jesus loved God perfectly. He, that's why, um, you know, as Christians, we so much, we, we focus on the, the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus, which is absolutely essential. But the life of Jesus is important as well. His obedient life, the author of Hebrews is all about this. Not just his sacrifice, but his obedient life. Jesus was obedient. He had to be to be the faithful Adam that God needed. And now God reigns over this creation through Jesus, his servant king, in faithful relationship with him. And Jesus will never fail. Exile is never coming again if you trust in Jesus. And Jesus, he started off the new creation in each one who has put their faith and trust in him. Jesus is bringing about a new creation, writing his law on our hearts. The prophet Jeremiah, in Jeremiah chapter 31, he talks about the new covenant. And he says, what's unique about the new covenant, and it's not going to be like the old covenant that Israel broke. And we've gotten lots of examples of that, and we're going to get tons more as we go through Exodus. Jeremiah says, it's not going to be like the old covenant, which Israel broke. In the new covenant, God's going to write his law on the people's hearts, and they will all know me from the least to the greatest. Which means that if you don't know the Lord, you're not a Christian. You're not a part of the new covenant. And at the very heart of knowing the Lord is steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and faithfulness that we can't put in our own hearts, but that God puts there by the Spirit. And I'm going to just go one more place as we close. Moses talks about this. Moses, at the end of the Torah, Deuteronomy 29, he says, to this day, Israel, God's not given you a heart to keep the law. Moses knew 
that God, that, 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 that Israel, God gave the law, but the people did not yet have hearts to keep it. But in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moses says this. He says, The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul so that you may live. That is the good news of the new covenant that Jesus brings. Jesus will put his law on our hearts so that we truly love. Not perfectly. I don't know about you, but my love for God and my love for people, it's a battle every day. But truly, Jesus said, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Love is at the heart of law. If you love, you fulfilled the law. But we can only we can only love through faith in Jesus who loved us first and who gave us his spirit so that one day when we get to heaven when we get to heaven God's not going to look at us and say congratulations you loved enough he's going to look at you and yes he'll say well done my good and faithful servant but all our works will only be a praise and a testimony at the end to his grace and to his kindness and to his Holy Spirit. When God gives us a crown, a victor's crown at the end of the race, when we enter the new creation, it's a mystery. But in some sense, he will be crowning the works that he himself worked in us. To him, as Paul says, be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts by your Spirit, stirring us up with a desire deeper than ever before for steadfast love and faithfulness in our hearts. I pray that we would be truly grateful that you, Lord Jesus, have made it possible for us to love you. And I pray that you would just continue to fill us with your love. And God, I pray that you would help us to be bothered, grieved and broken even, over our failures to love you and to love others. And I pray, Father, that our brokenness would lead to repentance. Repentance and greater trust. Please do this work in all of us, starting with me, with our leadership here. I pray that we would be a new covenant people who smell like new creation. That when people see us, they'll smell the fragrance of Christ and the love of Christ. God's love, which is broken into this world, this broken and bleeding world through Jesus. Stir our hearts, I pray, with love for him now. In Jesus' name, amen.